episode one of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hi there, Steve. So we've put out the introduction episode uh, prior to this. So if you want to know a little bit more about the podcast and what it's all about, you can give that a listen. But uh, Ben, I wanted to start by asking you how you're feeling about finally having our first episode ready to go. Well, it feels great, Steve. I think from when we were when we were talking earlier, one thing that we know for certain from our shared experiences in music is that rock and roll is going to offer up stories of all manner and description. And from this recent experience of putting the first episode together, I think we've found that the the stories that have come out from these initial discussions have been pitched pretty much exactly where we wanted to find them you know in terms of capturing a real experience from an individual in terms of their musical journey and everything that went into into that journey over time yeah so the the, the first first interviewee uh, is Dave Hulagard who is over in uh, Washington um, in the US and um, Dave got in touch through the fantastic early 90s indie uh, Twitter feed um, and he sent over some really interesting music and and uh, some photos and a biog and and all that kind of stuff but we which we which we both went through and sort of in in setting ourselves up for having the conversation with Dave hearing his story and um, and then going and listening to his music it's sort of framed it in a in a different way isn't it when you when you get to the end of the episode and you and you hear the song that he's talking about and and hear a bit more about his journey it's it's quite evocative isn't it that moment of listening to the song Oh, totally. I mean, I think, you know, we've, we've had some discussions around this and I really, I really enjoyed everything that, um, that Dave sent over to us. It really, you know, the pictures and the vast diversity of music from the beginning of his career to music that he's making now, we were able to get a real picture about who this individual was. Um, and he'd, he'd, you know, he'd cho- the choice that he made for the, for the song for, for this first episode was from the very start of his kind of career and it uh you know as he acknowledges it it's not without its faults it's a very a very real and raw piece of music that captures the the you know the kind of essence of an individual's first venture into making music um but kind of listen listening to that at the end of the episode having had those discussions with dave and having had him share a whole myriad of stories, you know, some really, really endearing stories. Some of which were, some of which were very sad and very heartfelt, and some of which were were, were full of elation. That that hearing that song, having had the context of those stories, was completely different, wasn't it? Yeah, really. Yeah, it really was. So I, I suppose, I suppose we should go to that conversation with with Dave Hulagard. Um, if you're listening to this and you would like to share some of your music and uh, be part of an upcoming episode, you can contact us on email uh, and the address is songsfromapaddedenvelope at gmail.com. Um, but sit back and enjoy the very first episode of Songs from a Padded Envelope with Dave Hulagard. Well, my name is Dave Hulagard. Uh, I am in uh, Washington over in the United States. I'm about 60 miles outside of Seattle, Washington. So um, definitely in the shadow of, of all that great music scene uh, that I'm sure a lot of us grew up with. Uh, I'm older. <laughs> so uh, I was born in the 70s and um, I really kind of came into music at a, at a very young age. So I got to go through all the awesome 80s and 90s. And, and I think that was a, a big part of what what drew me to music in the first place. And then it led me to this conversation with you guys, which is awesome. I think we're in the, we're in the same boat in terms of time timeline as well. <laughs> Perfect. So at the end of the show, we're going to listen to a song from a, a demo that you recorded back in the 90s. But we wanted to sort of kick off with just asking you to in, introduce that song and 
and talk a little bit about that band and uh, how you got to the point of making those recordings. Sure. Uh, well, the song that uh, that I, I really resonated the most with from that demo is a song called Ocean Boulevard. And it's uh, it's it's so embarrassing uh, now, you know, all these years later to be looking back at music that was recorded in the 90s and and mainly because of sound quality, I, th I think, for one, because <laughs> uh, I, I go back and listen to that demo. And, and I remember that day quite well uh, that we had um, it was just me and, and my uh, my drummer, Fred, at the time. And we had booked studio time with this guy who was kind of like a, a friend of a friend of a friend sort of thing. And his studio was in a basement in his house in uh, Portland, Oregon. And when we got there, our time was, you know, was booked and we were there on time. But this guy and his wife were diehard computer gamers. So <laughs> they were they were so deep into this game that they wouldn't stop playing so that we could go record the demo. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> Uh, so we we wound up just kind of hanging out in their living room while they were playing this game on their on their computer. Um, but uh, anyway, but we recorded the the demo in an entire afternoon. And so I, how I, how old were you guys at that point then, Dave? Oh, geez, I was nineteen. Yeah, <laughs> just a just a young young kid uh, fresh out of high school, and I had saved you know as much money as I possibly could from working at McDonald's uh, to pay for the the studio time. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember I remember my sort of making my first demo, and we at that time you used to flick through the back of the Melody Maker and and look at all the adverts for the places you could go and record, and I think we just stuck a pin in it in the end and said, well, that looks like one. So we went. We ended up in this place, going into this guy's backyard and into some, <laughs> yeah, some iniquitous den that was, yeah, it sounds like a similar experience to your own. Someone that didn't really care too much about recording music, but they liked the money at the end of the day. Oh yeah. Well, if it's a melody maker, I mean, how do you not think that's legit, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Was that so? That was the very first recording that you'd done. Yeah, I mean, up until that point, you know, like everybody else who'd ever had a, a you know, kind of a high school garage band, you know, you, you, you recorded demos with like a, a boombox or something, you know, or, or maybe somebody was lucky enough to have a Tascam, like four, uh, four track portable mm. studio. Uh, and I, I've done, you know, over the years, many recordings on a, on a four track, but that was like our actual first studio recording. And I think I, I had this idea in my head of, of what it was going to be, you know, like, didn't we all, right? We, we had this vision of this fancy studio that was going to have, you know, what, 24 karat gold walls and <laughs> all these amazing things, right? Guitars hanging as far as the eye could see. And uh, it was just a dingy basement. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell us a little bit about the band, Dave. So who was who was in the band and how did the band come together? So when I started, um, I was really interested in, in being in a band from kind of my earliest teenage years. And I, I didn't know how to play any instruments at that time. So I thought, well, the only way I'm going to make this work is as a singer. And so I'd gotten together with some friends of mine. Uh, my friend Josh was a bass player and my friend Travis was a guitarist. And it was really just the three of us at first. And we we went through so many drummers um, just trying to find the right fit over the years. And it just seemed like any time we would finally find a drummer, then uh, Josh and I would have uh, a falling out. And then, you know, then we didn't have a bass player. So then it was going through bass players. And eventually that just that dynamic didn't work, that that the kind of trio, the original trio of us didn't work. And I broke away completely. And somebody had recommended Fred um, as he was a drummer that went to a different high school. And uh, we just had mutual friends. So Fred was a little older than me uh, at the time. And well, he still is. But uh, but I, I didn't really know how to approach him, you know, because this this older guy. I don't know. Seems like a cool dude. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I sent him a recording of um, gosh, it was just something somebody had recorded on like a, you know, like a, a boom box at a, at a concert. And I just sent that to him. It was terrible. Like the recording is, is terrible. The quality is terrible. 
but he said that he heard something in it that just really, you know, stuck with him. And so um, he wanted to pursue it with me. And, and so that's that's kind of what brought him and I together. And then we remained the core of sort of that iteration of the band. Um, it, I, I kind of went through different, you know, uh, I guess, uh, what do you want to call it? Like a, a nucleus, right? Like a different, different versions of this, of this band. And so that was kind of the second version where it was Fred and I, and we still struggled with finding everything else. But by this point I, I had taught myself how to play guitar. So that kind of solved that issue. And then we, we eventually ended up with a bass player named Andrea and she was awesome. Um, just definitely right. And like right in the same vein that we were going for, and right before we recorded that demo that I sent you guys, she quit. So what you hear on that demo is just Fred and I uh, with me horribly providing the bass tracks. Uh, <laughs> so needless to say, that demo was never going to make it to Geffen Records. <laughs> and what, at that point, Dave, what was your musical inspiration? So what were the bands that were kind of key and significant to you at that time? You know, it's funny because uh, I think like a lot of people in that age group, um, I was really drawn to what was happening in, uh, you know, what eventually became known as alternative rock. You know, I I really was really into like the Nirvanas and um, the Pearl Jams, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the band that really kind of kicked the door open for me was Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. Um, I... I re, I don't know I I heard something in that music that was different and um, I remember getting a copy of Gish on cassette <laughs> because I'm that old uh, <laughs> we had cassettes but uh, getting a copy of Gish was uh, I swear it was just it was like a musical awakening uh, yeah. it's the best way I can describe it 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 was an education and it was uh, just really just jaw dropping awe awe inspiring you know every every superlative i can throw at it but um it's it remained... an incredible it's an incredible record isn't it and still yeah. still sounds incredible yeah now. to this day yeah it, it remains one of my favorite records of, of all time and that was kind of the the end for me you know i was like well now that now that i've heard this like that's what i need to be doing with my life uh-huh. but but in practice uh, i was just not a, a good guitar player i was i was no billy corgan uh, by any stretch and uh so what I found is that I would um, I would I would play guitar and I was teaching myself and I was using chord books and things like that. And so I would find these really nice sounding chords. Right. Like all the all the bands that I was into were all into power chords and distortion. Yeah. But I didn't know any better. I was like, well, but these open A chords sound amazing with the diminished seventh. Like this is yeah. incredible. So. Next thing I know, I'm I'm writing music that sounds more like the Lemonheads, and uh, and a lot less like, the, you know, the Smashing Pumpkin stuff that I'm really into. But that worked out well for me because, you know, it really helped me define what my sound was. And I, sorry, good. And were you liking the Lemonheads at that point? Was that a oh. band? <laughs> yes, yeah. I I uh, and I remain a, a massive Lemonheads fan uh, to this day. Um, I, I I really credit Evan Dando for uh, helping me appreciate the sound of a jangly guitar. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh my goodness, and that voice. Yes, right, right. <laughs> well, you, well, you said before about um, the demo was never going to make it to, uh, to to Geffen Records, but when you were going into that first session, what what were your expectations? What were you thinking you were going to do with that those recordings? You know, it's it's interesting because right now in 2020, <laughs> uh, Portland, Oregon is considered like one of the coolest, most you know, hippest places in in the country, and it's weird for me because I I grew up there and I don't live there anymore, but but I I grew up there, and to me like that's when Portland was cool. Like the the 90s was like the time to have been in Portland, Oregon and what it is now and and that could just be like an age thing like maybe just my interests and hobbies whatever just don't really blend with what's happening there but back then the music scene in portland oregon was was the best uh that you could find 
you know, arguably outside of like Seattle or you know, Boston had some great things happening at that time. But, mm-hmm. but for me, um, that was, that was it. You know, I was, I was hearing these local bands that were just blowing my mind and I'm so like, t- well, that's, so yeah, that's tell us a little bit more about those local bands. What kind of bands were they? Well, I think people are, are pretty familiar with Elliot Smith, um, mm-hmm. you know, nowadays and back before Elliot Smith became, you know, known for providing music to like the Goodwill Hunting soundtrack and, and obviously everything that came after that. He was in a band called Heat Miser um, in Portland, and I would go out of my way to see Heat Miser. Uh, they were just and I highly recommend looking them up if, if you if you're unfamiliar. Um, their music is incredible. And, and it's such a snapshot of what was happening in Portland at that time. And there was another band called the Spinanes. Uh, that were incredible. And uh, it was just a two piece. It was Rebecca Gates on uh, vocals and guitar and Scott Pluff on drums. And I took a lot of inspiration from that. Like I, I mentioned that we, we, Fred and I really struggled to find a bass player. So hearing a, another band out there who was able to make it work with just a guitar and drummer. And I thought, well, Hey, if they can do it, you yeah. know, that's we can do it. Yeah. So that was my goal was, you know, kind of following in the footsteps of these these giants, right, that were already there. And little did I know that those giants, you know, that that I'm kind of trying to follow in the footsteps of like they're trying to get out of Portland. They're trying to get to Seattle and and get their music noticed on a on a bigger scale. So when we recorded that demo, um, you know, I, I had dreams and hopes that we might be able to get recognized by like a, a small uh, Portland label called Cavity Search Records that had um, had been responsible for so many just fantastic records in that era. And and that was that was my dream. But uh, it was just not uh, not meant to be. <laughs> Did you get the demo to them at Cavity Search? No, I, I think once I heard the demo, and don't get me wrong, like I I, I love it in, in the way that you know you you love your children, um, <laughs> but uh, but you know there was something going on at the time where I knew the band just wasn't wasn't going the way I wanted it to. Like something was missing. And as much as I love Fred, and Fred and I still remain friends to this day, but by the time we hit kind of the mid '90s it was very obvious to me that Fred and I just had different disciplines. Like I was a hundred percent focused on music and, and making it work and, you know, turning into something, making something of myself. And Fred was a really good drummer, but he didn't have the same focus and drive that I did. So when we would play together, he would mess up a lot and, no matter how much we practiced, which was, you know, at least three times a week, mm-hmm. no matter how much we practiced, by the time we got to a show, he had already forgotten the transitions and the music. Or if I would say the name of a song, you know, I'm reading the set list and saying, OK, well, we're going to play this one. And he would not know which one that was. And mm-hmm. I, I would have to actually play like a, a bar to for him to be like, oh, okay, that one. <laughs> I, I think I think this story is chiming with us, Dave. I think we've both been there, been there before, haven't we, Steve? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's great. Um, Dave, you you mentioned in your some of your initial communications with us that um, the being in a band was so important to you. Mm-hmm. Can you can you tell us a bit about what happened next for um, for for Apathy's Last Kiss? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's where my uh, my musical venture really splinters because all of this was happening, you know, like I mentioned with with Fred and we played an absolutely disastrous concert in in Portland and it was this thing where there was a local band that I was a, a huge fan of called Stereo Crush and I had met the singer guitarist many times uh, through different people through different iterations through other bands you know just we we had interfaced many times over the years and he had put together this this awesome band called stereo crush and um i i desperately wanted to play a show with them and so i i had worked with a, a promoter to get this show booked and i asked them to headline 
Uh, I said, like, there's no way like I'm headlining this show. So, you know, let's let's bring you in. The thing was they were starting to get really full of themselves at the time because they were starting to attract fan base and interest from labels and things like that. So they agreed to the show, which was great. But when Fred and I opened for them and we we really just we just had a bad night. We we messed up a couple of songs um, that was just kind of embarrassing. And Johnny was, was his name from the other band. He took the opportunity to make fun of us, uh, which was really unpleasant. <laughs> because, hideous. Yeah, it was, it was this band that I, I, I loved and respected so much. And it was an honor to play with them and just to have this horrible show and then have his reaction be to make fun of us. And it wasn't just a one-time thing because he made fun of us during our set. And then when they played, he made fun of us again. And I, I was so humiliated that that was the end. Uh, Apathy's Last Kiss was dead. Um, I told Fred I never wanted to play another show, um, that I was done. So that was uh, really another reason why the demo never never surfaced, never materialized. It was just sitting in a box, in a shoe box in my, in my closet for years. Um, and that, I, I really thought that was the end of music for me, to be completely honest. I, I was so heartbroken and humiliated that just the thought of even playing guitar or writing music or anything just seemed like, like an impossible thing from that point on. So did that stop you for a, for a good long while or what, what, what brought you back to it? What made you turn away from that decision? Well, after 1996, when all that happened, um, I still continued to play you know, in, in my bedroom. And, and I think that anyone who's ever played an instrument knows that feeling that you can say you're going to walk away and you can say that you'll never touch that instrument again, but it calls to you. It, it really does. And over the, the next couple of years that followed, I continued to write music. And what I realized is that my songs were getting better, which I think is just kind of the natural maturation of, of experience. You know, like you, you continue to improve, so you hope, uh, <laughs> over time. Mm-hmm. And, and here, over the next two to three years, I was writing songs that were so much better than what I had with Apathy's Last Kiss, like songs that I felt prouder to, you know, kind of stamp my name on. And I was still determined at that point that I was never going to do music again. But what I wanted to do was get a recording of these songs um, because I, I didn't want to walk away with nothing. I didn't want to have those dreams, you know, and, and, and everything that I, every effort I'd put into it, just have, have it be for nothing. So in, uh, in 1999, I, uh, I contacted a friend of mine who had opened a studio and I, I asked him if I could just come in and record some songs, basically just to archive them just so that I had something. And when we got to, um, to doing that, it was really his recommendation where he was like, hey, do you mind if I spend some time on these songs? Like, I'd, I'd really like to, you know, maybe put some bass and drums behind them. And I thought, whatever, you know, sure. And a couple of weeks went by and, and I wasn't really thinking anything of it. And he sent me the first kind of two or three recordings. And I I had never heard my music sound like that, you know, with like the, the full the full band treatment and, and sounding like a professional recording. And, and really that, that kind of woke me back up where I was like, I've got to chase this feeling. (laughs) Yeah. So you hadn't heard uh, anything that he was working on until he sent you the finished songs as it were. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That must've been incredible after that awful experience with the, with the, the show and the, you know, the being, being humiliated and then to, to, for somebody to kind of have the opposite reaction to your music and say, do you know what? I'm hearing something here. I'm going to, I'm going to go out of my way and put all this effort into, to, to, uh, support in your music in that way. That must've been an incredible moment for you. You know, it, it really was, uh, the first song that he sent me or the first song that he completed was a song called lost at sea. And, at the time, um, when I wrote that song, it, you know, lyrically, it's a bit sophomoric because I was definitely younger and, and 
you know, my biggest problems in life were just kind of unrequited loves from high school, right? Like we, <laughs> we, we all have plenty of those, but, but that's, that's the kind of stuff I was writing about. And, and, you know, in, in super overdramatic fashion, you know, I, I'd, I'd written Lost at Sea about this, uh, this girl that I'd had a, a really big crush on, which of course a really big crush feels like love when you're a teenager. And, uh, and I, I heard this song for the first time with the full instrumentation behind it. And I actually got tears in my eyes yeah. uh, because it was just, it was, it was what I had been chasing since I'd started playing guitar back in 94. And it took, you know, almost six years to finally hear my music the way that I'd always dreamed I would hear it. And have you guys carried on working together after that? As a matter of fact, he still owns a studio. Uh, and, uh, we're we're doing uh, some recordings later this year, so I am um, I'm I'm excited to get back in there and uh, and record newer stuff and and uh, see how that works. That's fantastic. I I wanted to just um, uh, um ask a little bit about um a little bit more about getting your music out to other people. So when that sure. other when those uh, is this the twelve days in June project that you're talking about now? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That was. That was after after these last kiss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when when those when that music came to you um, after it had been sort of embellished and built upon, did, did you did you did that kind of rekindle any aspirations for getting that music out there? Did you send it out to other people? Did it did it sort of reignite those sort of the ambitions that you had as a musician? Yeah. By the time that that we were done with that project. And my goal had never been to record an album. It was really just, you know, like I, I said, it, it was it's just to archive these songs. But by the time we were done, um, you know, we, we came out of that process with, I believe, 12 or 13 songs. And um, it was really, you know, again, his name is Josh. Uh, we're, we're still, you know, very close today. And he has been a huge believer in me uh, since the beginning. And you know, it was really through his recommendation that I, I take advantage of different services that were available back then. So by the time that the demo was completed, it was uh, we were into 2000 at that point. And uh, I can't remember the name of the service, but they still have similar things today where you can submit your music to like a uh, like a, a review service. But you're you're not paying for reviews. It's like you have to listen to. 10 reviews and then you earn a credit and then you can use that credit to submit one of your songs for uh, for reviews and it's all peers it's it's not going to you know other uh, labels or anything like that mm -hmm. and so that was uh, that was really attractive to me uh, back in 2000 and I thought you know I'm going to take the two you know what I believe to be the two best songs from this project and I'm going to submit them and just kind of see what feedback I'm going to get and what I noticed is that my music has always been very hard to classify. I, mm -hmm. I think that, and I don't say that with hubris, you know, like one of those people who, who thinks that what they're doing is special. I, I, I don't think what I'm doing is, is different, um, you know, from, from anything that's ever been done. I just mean to say that when I think about the wide mixture of influences, right? Like, like I, my favorite music is everything from grunge to shoegaze to new wave um, and, and really like everything in between. Whereas mm -hmm. now, even now in 2020, I'm, I'm listening to a lot of ambient music. And, and I think that ambient music shares a lot of commonality with shoegaze and, mm -hmm. and what, what I loved so much about the shoegaze movement of the early nineties. Um, so when I was doing this, this peer review thing, and I would I would listen to, you know, doing the requirement to listen to music that I was supposed to. And I was just I wasn't hearing anything like what I'm doing or what I was doing. And, and there, a lot of bands were trying to emulate uh, like Limp Biscuit, And like that, that was a big thing in the early 2000s. You kind of had that. And I, I forget what they classified the genre as. But you kind of had that that revival of sorts of rock music that had sort of gone away in the late 90s and was starting to come back a little bit in the early 2000s. So I definitely knew I wasn't doing Limp Biscuit sounding stuff. <laughs> uh, 
And, and so I, I really tried to focus on um, bands that I loved, you know, like when I think about like uh, my favorite bands of all time. And, and I like a lot of stuff that came out of like the Manchester scene, you know, I mean, I'm sure you guys are familiar with what was going on there in the early nineties, Ned's atomic dustbin, the wonder stuff. Um, that is right up my alley, right? That, that, those were some of the first bands that really got me wanting to play music. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I thought if I could find others who, you know, who were interested in that kind of music or playing that kind of music, that these were going to be my peers. And I just couldn't find that, uh, no matter what I did. And, and that kind of made me lose hope that maybe what I was doing was outdated and that music had moved on. And certainly, um, I hate telling this story cause it makes me look like a total idiot, but, uh, I was always a massive fan of lush and, and lush has like, um, Gala, I would say, is is one of the greatest records of that era. And I had an opportunity to see Lush perform in an, like a, an in-record store concert. And it was when they were, um, I forget the name of the album. Is it Love Life that had Lady Killers? I don't know it. Yeah, well, it was, it was a, definitely a, a change in their music style. They, they had been kind of pioneers on the, the forefront of shoegaze. And then they had transitioned a little bit more into a, a poppier rock sound. And so I, I'm the, the singer uh, was just looking at records and I thought, well, here's an opportunity for me to introduce myself and talk about music. And yeah, she could not have been less interested to do that. So, oh, what a shame. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, like, but I, it was really things like that that made me think like, all the bands that I still loved were changing their sound. And I know that that happens over time, but what I was doing was still firmly rooted in kind of that early to mid nineties sound. And I thought my time had just come and gone and that, you know, people into Limp Biscuit were, you know, kind of carrying us forward. <laughs> well, a lot, a lot of what's coming across in what you're stating, when you're saying Dave in the stories is, is about the importance of, you know, of creativity in, in people's lives, you know, one, one of the things that Steve and I were touching on when we did the first introduction episode to the podcast was how essential creativity is. And once mm -hmm. you, once you kind of get that initial fix, initial hit of making something and putting something out there, how life affirming it can be. That's so true. All I wanted from the time I first learned to play guitar was to hear my music on a CD, right? Like I, I thought that's how you know you've made it when your music is on a CD and you can select which track you want to hear yeah. off your CD, right? And, uh, you know, I, I eventually accomplished that in, in 2000. And after that, it was like, well, there's more to do, you know? Like just hearing music on CD was great, but I've got new goals now and... I, I wanted to continue refining my sound and continue writing music. And, you know, my, my weapons of choice changed a little bit. You know, I, I kind of got off the distortion kick and, and focused more on acoustic music for a time and then back and forth and then uh, kind of melding the two. <laughs> so you're going to be drawing in some new, the, some of the ambient influences in the, in, in the next set of recordings. Yes, uh, I have. Uh, I've been looking at some uh, some effects pedals that will really kind of give me that that rising swell sound uh, that I love so much from ambient music, and and I'm I'm still kind of experimenting a little bit. It it was really uh, getting a stereo reverb pedal was <laughs> kind of life changing, um, creatively speaking. Like you know, Ben was saying, it, it's it's really it's it's thinking that you've hit your limits as a musician or as, as a, as a songwriter of this is, this is the pinnacle, right? Like we talked about at the very beginning about my song ocean Boulevard, uh, from that apathy's last kiss demo. And there was a time I thought that was the pinnacle of what I was ever going to do as a musician. And then came 12 days in June and Josh taking lost at sea and producing the heck out of it. And, 
putting cool effects on it, like doubling my vocals, quad tracking my guitars, um, all these different things that obviously you can't replicate live uh, without a lot of gear. But but that's not the point, right? That's not the point of making a record is is not necessarily to create something you're going to replicate live. It's, it's to get the best sounding version of something you've created, at least for yeah, me. Totally. I, so when, uh, when I started thinking about, well, I'm never going to get beyond lost at sea. Then I wrote a song called Caroline and Caroline was, um, a song that was really the product of me just spending hours with a stereo reverb pedal and learning what was possible like what could i accomplish and i didn't have to play just you know d a c d you know chord progressions i i could i could learn to play different things and get different sounds and so here we are all these years later and now you have companies like walrus audio that in my opinion make the best effects pedals possible uh, just the sounds you can get out of these things are amazing. And so that's like another, another step, another venture, like what else can I do with these? You know, it's, it's never changing, but like you guys said, it's, it's that, that never ending search to keep finding your sound and creating. Yeah. I think, I think, um, there's probably some merit in having a conversation later on with Ben, Ben about, um, effects pedals because he, he uh, has got a lot of experience with those. And <laughs> I've, I've, just written, I've just written down Walrus Audio here. I felt I had a feeling you might have done that. When Steve and I were talking earlier today, Dave, we were kind of, um, we listened roughly, we listened to uh, the Apathy's Last Kiss stuff and we listened to 12 Days in June. And uh, I think we were both really endeared, really, really liked the fact that you went back and chose something from so early in your music making career. Mm-hmm. that it just has like you say it, there's something very very raw and very real and very honest about the presentation of that song um and it definitely you know it has character to it and i'm really i for one was really glad that you chose that even <laughs> though i really enjoyed listening to the 12 days in tune stuff and can hear everything you're saying about you know i can imagine now that process of the, those songs coming together between you and josh as well i, I just wanted to ask a another question about your sort of how you're using your creative ideas now have you just stayed rooted to music or have you sort of explored other creative avenues as well i definitely realized that at an early age that i i was gonna have a hard time being um an analytical sort of professional you know like i like sitting behind a desk at a, at a cube um just didn't seem like a a really good long-term venture uh so i i i've always tried to pursue something creative and my my brain is just always chewing on something whether it's music or telling a story and uh, you know just just something to let me exercise like that part and because i've always kind of it's it's like a double life right there's that life where we, if we're lucky, we can get a job that we love, but a lot of the time we're, we're working because we have to pay bills, uh, and, and you can't wait to come home and sort of get into the things that you really care about, the things that you're really passionate about. And, and so I, I, uh, I started writing, uh, like actually writing stories, uh, short stories, uh, blog posts and, Um, I was really influenced by a TV show called Lost. I'm sure Sure. you're familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It was it was such a uh, such a huge lightning bolt watching that show and and really kind of learning, like dissecting it to really to really understand the mechanics behind telling that massive story. And, And I know people's opinions differ kind of how it all came together. But no matter what you think about how it ended. I think that the overall presentation is is such a beautiful story, and it inspired me so much that I wanted to tell my own stories and and really have fun with mystery and uh, speculative fiction, you know, thing things of that nature. And so I started writing short stories, and then that turned into, you know, hey, like 
you you tell really fun stories, Dave. You should try writing a novel. And I'm like, okay. So <laughs> I <laughs> I tried writing a novel and and it was terrible. Uh, I probably um, you know next time you you guys do um, you know like novels from a padded envelope, um, <laughs> <laughs> we we can dive into that. But um, yeah, I I think that. Uh, it, it's it's just like anything else, you know. If you don't know what you're doing when you get started, it doesn't matter. Is it's more important that you got started, not that you, you know, delivered the best that you're ever gonna do right off the bat. So, yeah, it, I I wrote uh, novels for about ten years, and then I thought, you know, novels are are fun, and I and I love telling stories, but I don't know that that it was necessarily the best. Uh, the best outlet for me to tell stories. I, I think the publishing industry has changed a lot and kind of what people are looking for is different because the, the type of stories that I tell, even though if I'm a good enough writer, <laughs> I can, I can inspire people's imagination. But I, I think that people, thanks to like say the Marvel cinematic universe or, or star Wars, you know, things that, that are so visually appealing it's like, well, I don't want to read that. I don't want to read The Last Jedi or Rise of Skywalker or Infinity you know, Wars or whatever. You, you, you don't want to necessarily read it. You want to, you want to go see it on that massive screen with Dolby Atlas surround sound and whatever. So, so I, I kind of got away from books and, and thought about, you know, what else could I do? You know, could I potentially write screenplays instead and and you know that's kind of something I'm, I'm still dabbling with a little bit so maybe in the next you know year or so hopefully you'll have something that i can be proud of yeah fantastic are you are you writing a, a short screenplay or are you looking at a feature script i'm i'm going for a full like kind of a minimum 90 minute sort of thing um you know see if i can see if i can do it it's really just it's just fun to challenge myself you know even if nothing comes of it. It's, it's like, it, it's fun to look back and say, I did it, which I guess taps into that archivist, uh, thing with my music, right? Same thing. It's just, it's, it's fun to have it and, and to look back and, and just be proud, you know? So I'm just thinking about that on that sort of tip, if in a sort of back to the future style, if you, <laughs> if you had a chance to write a letter to yourself, to the, to the younger Dave, what what advice would give you would you give to yourself about being in a band or becoming a musician? Don't give up. I mean, that as simple as simple as it can be. I I I get very frustrated and angry at myself in current day, thinking that I I was 19 years old when I got so frustrated that I said I don't want to play music anymore. And it's it's asinine um, to be 19 years old and not realize that there's still so much time. And I think that when we're when we're young and we're in that moment, it's too difficult for us to think about patience because the dream we want, we want to live now. Mm -hmm. So why, you know, who's going to be able to say, if I just keep working at it, if I keep grinding it out in two or three years, I'm going to be where I want to be. But I mean, asking a 19 year old to wait two or three years to reach their, their <laughs> dream, uh, that's, that's a pretty tall order. And uh, I wish that as a teenager, I had been blessed with more wisdom and, and more patience to realize that Yes, 1996 was incredibly frustrating and it was humiliating and everything I felt was completely legitimate, but it was not a reason to walk away because I'm not saying that I had what it takes to be a huge success or anything, but it, it was at the very least, I think about what could I have accomplished musically if I'd never given up. Mm. And when I hear the music that I'm creating today, or if I go back and I listen to the 12 days in June demo and, and things like that, it's like, I was, I was, I was going somewhere. I don't know where, but somewhere. And if I just stuck with it, you know, who knows? 
Indeed. Yeah. D- Dave, thank you so much for uh, for coming and being on the first episode of Songs from a, from a Padded Envelope and uh, and speaking so openly with us about your your music and your creativity. And uh, I, I, I mean, I haven't spoken to Ben about this, obviously, but I think it would be really nice to uh, to maybe revisit with you when your new demos are done and, and uh, to talk to you about them and talk about how uh, find out how they've come out and how you feel about them and and, and, and put them on a on an episode if you'd be interested in doing that. That would be great. I would love that. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be fantastic. To do. Can we can we just close with you uh, introing uh, the song that we're going to play now um, and, and uh, just teeing it up for us, if you wouldn't mind? Yeah, absolutely. So Ocean Boulevard was, uh, like I had mentioned earlier, it, it was it was a song that I had written that I felt I, I was never going to top. And uh, and it's it's hilarious to think that now, obviously, looking back. But uh, but it was it was a song that really combined, in my opinion, the best elements of all of my musical influences at that time, because it was loud and distorted at points. It was really clean and jangly at others. It, it really brought everything that I loved musically and then vocally. Um, you know, the demo's a little rough, and uh, anyone <laughs> listening is definitely going to hear that there's some uh, some sour notes here and there. But, um, but you know, it was it, it was still something that I can look back on and and proudly share uh, because I I really enjoyed the process of writing it and putting it together. And what you're going to hear in this song is it's going to sound pretty standard four four you know, bar chords, uh, distortion, but I encourage you to stick with it <laughs> because it really takes on a whole separate life. And, and you're going to hear me throw in my smashing pumpkins influences. I've got octaves moving up and down the frets. Um, <laughs> it, it, it really is the best way I can put it. It's a snapshot in time. Um, ocean Boulevard for me represents what the nineties side of my songwriting was like. Dave, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for for doing this. And uh, we're going to close out with with Ocean Boulevard by Apathy's Last Kiss. Thank you guys so much.
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. (laughs) 